when I speak for the kids, I insist, I instill in them. Don't hate, don't ridicule other people. Because remember, and, and I point to them, remember, guys, the Holocaust didn't start with gas chambers. It started with words, and it developed into gas chambers. Hmm. I'll leave an impact because at the end of it, when I eventually finish, a lot of them come up to me, can we give you a hug? Oh, sure you can. Silver Adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences. And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. Hello there. Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to the third season of the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. I'm your host, Ash Deneef, and wowza, three seasons already. We hope you've had a super restorative break. Maybe you got away for a little bit, or you just had a few nice moments with loved ones. Whatever you did, we hope you're feeling energized and ready for another great year. One that's full of opportunities to do the thing that I think most of us here are doing, improving the lives of older adults. We've got a big season coming up this year with some exciting announcements, fascinating guests, and more episodes like the one you're about to hear. This season, we really want to feature more voices of older adults, and today's episode is about preserving some very important human stories. We were lucky to be connected with Joe DeHaan, a 99-year-old Dutch Holocaust survivor, to chat about some of his life experiences, and with Shannon Biederman, curator of the Sydney Jewish Museum, who is using new technologies to preserve stories just like Joe's. This week's episode coincides with International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and we're glad we can share these two perspectives at this time. So it's a bit of a different episode for us, but at its core, it's about older adults, human stories, and emerging new tech, so we're really excited to present it. First up is Joe, who was an absolute pleasure to talk to, and you'll hear that we get straight into it. Just as a bit of context, when Joe was in hiding during the war, he used the fake name Willem, which you'll hear him referring to throughout. And I should also call out that there is one very big expletive in the interview. So if you're sensitive to that, just watch out. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this interview with Joe DeHaan as much as I did. Do you mind sharing some of your story with us today? Oh, sure. So you were you were born in Amsterdam, you said, right? Correct. And I think... Judging by, if my maths is correct, you were born in 1922? Yeah, October. You were just a teenager when the war broke out, right? I was 17 years old. Wow. Do you remember feeling anything at that time, fear, or what was uh, the kind of mood? Panic. Mm. Because when, when Queen Wilhelmina came onto the radio in the middle of the night to speak to the population, there was pandemonium particular amongst the Jewish population. Amsterdam had about 85,000 Jewish people. The whole country was about 140,000. And it was absolute disaster. Of course, we knew all about the prosecutions and the 
the terrible things was happening in Germany because thousands of, I would say, at least 5,000, maybe even more, German Jews fled Germany to Holland. Mm. So we knew straight what was happening in Germany was terrible, was shocking. Did you and your family think about leaving when the war started? When the war started, you had hardly no chance to leave. The best place to flee to was to England. But how do you do that? The whole coastline was occupied by the Nazis. The only in the, the three or four, how long did the war last? Five days. Yeah, on the fifth day, Rotterdam was bombed. Hmm. The whole inner city was destroyed. Nearly 900 people died. Hmm. And my father was finished. He was so depressed. And my mother got sick from the war. I lost my mother in June 1941. I say from the worries and the whole, all, everything else. Anyway, it was a shocking time. My father had a butcher business, was closed up. Lots of shops were closed up. Every couple of weeks was another measure. The Star of David, identity cards, the curfew. You want to visit on your worst enemies. What we went through. I lost my father in Sobibor, my stepmother, my brother. He died from disease and he died in September 1944. He was 25 years old. He never came back. My father never came back. Stepmother never came back. About 75 members from my immediate family, from father and mother's side. 105,000 died out of the 140. It was very, very hard. I was very lucky. I was taken care of by very brave Christian families who didn't look the other way. When the need was there, they did help. I was lucky. A lot of people had very bad experiences being in hiding. When the money ran out, they were kicked out. I don't blame nobody for saying, I'm sorry, I'm scared, I've got a family, I've got a wife and family and kids and young kids. I'm scared to help. I don't blame them because you take your life in your hands and your family. In Poland, they wiped out whole families if they found the Jewish people being hidden by a family. So I don't blame nobody for looking the other way. So who were the family that took you in? First in Amsterdam was a lady of the Salvation Army who I met through my father's friend. And I met her once, maybe that was in before or during the war when the war broke out. And about a year later, when the war broke out and we were occupied, one day there was a huge raid that blocked off the whole, whole part of East Amsterdam, huge area as big as Caulfield, maybe even bigger. And my father and stepmother were already taken out. That's a whole different episode in my life. And I was alone. And this lady from the Salvation Army was my only hope. And early morning, six o'clock, straight after, or maybe before curfew, I can't remember now. I got to her street and I rang her doorbell early morning, not a sound, not a peep, 
And then I rang her doorbell. She was my only hope of help. And when she opened the door and she saw me, she didn't say, go away, go away. You know? She said, come quickly, close the door. Come, come, come. And she took me inside. Wow. I was a couple of weeks with And from there, I went to Friesland, to the farmers. So when you went to Friesland, you said you, you were part of an organization there, the underground helped find you somewhere to stay? Yeah. I was placed with a hus- husband, a farmer and his wife and, and a son and a daughter. And they were very nervous. And I realized people are scared, you know. They knew what I was. And I used to work on the farm like a farmer. It was a dairy farm, hmm. 24 cows. We had calves, we feed them. We, I did all the work, we did all the milking. The three of us ate each every morning, four o'clock, get up, <laughs> milking time. I, was, I, I, I crept out of my hiding place. And then 1944, the temperature in the winter was about 12 to 16 degrees below zero. Oof. And the wind was howling, you couldn't open your eyes. And the three of us did all the milking in the morning, four o'clock. Where was the root coming this written? I couldn't understand the words what they were talking about when I got there. But after about a year and a half, I was quite capable. This is because of the accent? It's the language. And the Frisian people are very proud. They're Frise, not Dutch. Frise. Hmm. I thought, what the fuck are they talking about? (laughs) (laughs) And I used to make butter. I used to spin the wool. I used to make help with the vegetables planting and all that. It was good for my mind, uh, although obviously my family was always on my mind, but I had some purpose, you know. Mm. When I got to that farm, the biggest farm in the whole area, they were wonderful. Never worried about Jews. Every morning at breakfast table, a chapter of the Bible was read, and every night as well. And the first Sunday after the liberation, the first Sunday I said, I come to church with you guys, I want to see. Hmm. I went along, and maybe 100 people congregation. And Jan Rosie, the father said, people come meet Willem, come and meet Willem. And everybody came up and shook my hand and gave, embraced me. Wow. Everybody knew. It must have been very emotional. Amazing time. So when the when Holland was liberated, did you go back to Amsterdam? Not immediately. I, I stayed four weeks. The main reason was there was still a lot of work to be done. It was springtime. I couldn't leave them in the lurch. People took me, you know, Mm. I felt it's not right. I was dying to go to Amsterdam. And I said, okay, Monday. Now everything is finished. Monday, I'll go back to Amsterdam. Before I left the farm, I embraced Marchie and Pearl was there and Jan. 
And Jan said, I hope you will write. And when I got back in 1990, they pulled out a drawer and they must have had about a hundred letters. All my letters were there. Wow. They never thrown away one, not even one. And I'm sorry to say, I don't know what happened. All the letters I got from anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, so how did you end up in, in South Africa, Joe? My mother's brother was the only one in South Africa. And after the war, it was the only family. And that's how we ended up, my wife and me, in Cape Town. They were living in Cape Town in 1948. Wow. So soon after. Yeah. And I got a job by a German Jewish family in a small uh, village, about 75 Jewish people. And how long were you there for in Cape Town? 42 years. Wow. From 1948 till 1919 in Cape Town. Wow. And from 1919, we came here because my daughter did her doctorate here. Hmm. I got a daughter. She's a wonderful daughter to me. Very smart. She's professor at the Baker Institute in Diabetes Research. She's got four degrees. Hard working. I make a joke with the kids when I speak for the school kids mm. at the Holocaust Center. I said, hey, listen to me. You do your best at school, eh? And if you do as good as my daughter, because she was very unhappy. And why was she so unhappy? Because she only has three degrees and she wanted one more. <laughs> <laughs> I make a joke with the kids. <laughs> When I speak for the kids, I insist, I instill in them. Don't hate, don't ridicule other people. Because remember, and, and I point to them, remember, guys, the Holocaust didn't start with gas chambers. It started with words, and it developed into gas chambers. Hmm. I'll leave an impact with them, because... I hammered them a little bit. Do your best at school. Don't be like me, leaving school at 14. Hmm. And I'll leave an impact because at the end of it, when I eventually finish, a lot of them come up to me, can we give you a hug? Hmm. Oh, sure you can. <laughs> anyway. Now I do this, I speak to the kids, hopefully it's it will help a bit that I don't grow up with hate from one another. Mm. No, I'm, I'm sure it helps, and it helps adults too. Yeah. And just to hear everything that, you know, all your experiences so far, and it seems like you you got a pretty full calendar as well when your son Michael called before. you you got a busy day ahead of you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, Joe, I've, I've got to jump off the call. Thank you so much for, for talking today and, and sharing your story. You're welcome. Okay, hashtag gesund and <laughs> take good care of yourself. You too. See you, Joe. Bye, Ash. Well, a massive thanks to Joe for his time and to our mutual friend Tammy for arranging the conversation. We really appreciate it. Coming up after the break, we're talking to Shannon Biederman, someone who's had a lot of conversations like the one I just had. 
And along with her team at the Sydney Jewish Museum, they've embraced a remarkable way of capturing and preserving the stories of Holocaust survivors. This conversation really made me excited for what might be possible with our family members and care recipients in just a few years' time. So stay tuned for that after this very quick break. Guess who's coming back to the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast? Hello, I'm here with Daniela Greenwood. And I'm here with Mori Voicey Balan. That's right. We're very excited to announce that our good friends, Daniela Greenwood and Maury Voicey Balan, coming back to the show and for a regular spot this season. I'm really stumped by how what the resolution is here because I think there's a lot to dig into. You would have been better working at McDonald's, Murray, because I they've got a good set. I could have been somebody, <laughs> Daniela. I could have been somebody. You are a somebody, Murray. You, and the more I learn about you, you're an amazing oh, somebody. Oh, thank you. I think the same. We'll be revealing more details about their involvement this Friday. So stay tuned. You're going to be the new <laughs> Minister of Ageing if it's the last thing I do. Well, Shannon, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, nice to be here. Could you quickly give us an intro of who you are and and what you do? So my name is Shannon Biederman, and I'm a curator at the Sydney Jewish Museum. And I work across two areas. I work with collections as well as exhibitions. Fantastic. And and, uh, what sort of stuff goes on in your day-to-day work? So on the collection side of things, we are continuously getting in donations and objects. So I'm recording history, writing histories, um, more and more as our collection has involved that has also included testimony. So now I work in the oral history, which is conducting interviews, preserving interviews, thinking about how to use interviews. And then uh, the other part of my job is exhibitions. So taking all of these collections and memories and making them accessible to the public. Fantastic. And and you've touched on what we would love to talk about today, about oral histories and and testimony. And could you maybe give us a bit of background to this project, the Dimensions and Testimony Project? Because I know that there's something you guys are doing which is quite interesting with the way that you're capturing stories of older adults there. Yeah, so stories is a really important part of my institution. I've been at the museum for about 16 years. And when I started there, there were always Holocaust survivor guides on the floor. So every time a visitor would come, they would speak you know, to these living historians and to have this really meaningful interaction. And time and time again, visitors, students, you know, always gave us feedback on how powerful and moving these experiences were. And so it's something that is really important to us. It's not just about history, but it's about people. It's about humanity. And these stories, these testimonies are really the foundation of this. And so for many years, as this generation has been getting older and inevitably passing, we have been grappling with how do we preserve these stories and how do we keep this human face to humanity, which has led us down this road to this very exciting project uh, called Dimensions in Testimony. We partnered with the Shoah Foundation, which is based at the University of Southern California in LA. And it's a really amazing institution. Their mandate is also oral histories as well. And we came upon them by chance, in fact, As we have been recording testimonies, we became very concerned with not only what we were recording, so making sure everyone, you know, we got down 
everything that everyone wanted to say, but how we did it, because this technology has been evolving. And so this question of how we were recording became very important to us, which led us down the road of volumetric capture. Basically, what they do is our interviews were recorded in this custom-built rig that had 23 cameras arranged in a circle, so 360 degrees, and they're arranged in stereoscopic pairs. Mm -hmm. And so they do these measurements. So one camera is recording, one is taking a measurement. And so hopefully one day we can present a dimensional image. So almost a hologram you're talking like about. Like a hologram, exactly. So it started from a place of technology, but then it quickly moved back to the original mandate of content, mm -hmm. which these interviews are very interesting ones. They're unlike anything we've ever captured before. I believe it, yeah. And, and before we jump into the interviews, I'm really fascinated by how that process happens, but maybe I can just try and paint a picture. So correct me if I'm wrong, but the person who's being interviewed is sitting in the middle of a circle. There are cameras all around them that are taking video at different angles so that you can recreate a, a sort of 3D hologram. Is that right? That's right. It's actually, it's a very surreal environment because it's basically, it's got a green screen all around. Mm -hmm. So if you, you walk into this green circle, so the walls are green, the floor is green, there's lights around, there's cameras around. So it, it was quite a unique experience for our survivors to sit in for hours and hours a day. It was, I think they found it quite amusing. <laughs> so hours and hours a day, why so many so many hours. Why so many questions? Can you talk about the interview process a bit? Yeah. So there's actually another aspect uh, to the technology. Uh, the other is it's creating an interactive biography. Mm -hmm. And so what these interviews try and do is to replicate a kind of lifelike conversation with an, into an individual. And so we asked them up to a thousand questions over a week. And we asked them everything about their life before the war, during the war. We asked them about, you know, the reflections as a Holocaust survivor, current events, um, forgiveness, hate, anything you can possibly think of, how their experiences influenced them as a parent. We ask them what their favorite movies are, books, colors. It's quite an extensive interview because basically every question, every response we've gone and we've cut it into a little clip. And this is all uploaded into this software, which the USC Shoah Foundation has created. And it allows you to have a lifelike conversation with the individual. So using artificial intelligence and machine learning, you can ask the person, when is your birthday? And it should pull up the clip when is your birthday? <laughs> so the experience for somebody who's in there is, is almost like a conversation then? It is almost like a conversation. And that was the main thing that I think the Shoah Foundation, as well as us, are trying to preserve into the future, is how can you have these conversations and these really meaningful engagements with survivors in the future when they are no longer with us? It's very interesting because then you can also have a very unique conversation with a survivor. So what you're interested in, you can go and you can ask them and it's amazing. It really is. Mm. Yeah, no, it, it sounds fascinating. So I'm guessing the AI is listening for certain words or topics that you're talking about and it's going to search through the library to bring up an appropriate response, which will then kind of fit your question. Exactly. You know, everyone has a different way of asking something. You might 
ask, you know, when's your birthday? And someone might ask, when were you born? And so right now we're going through and just making sure that the software is looking for all of those different variables. Mm-hmm. We do have some stock standard responses like, oh, I was, that's a great question. I wasn't asked that during my interview. If someone... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wish I had an answer for you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we do have some of those. So we never change any answers. We don't edit everything. Every clip is self-contained. So we don't change anything. Mm. And hopefully there, there is always an answer to whatever people ask. The Showa Foundation has um, recorded these all over the world. So they're in America, Europe. I believe they've done about 43 of them now. Wow. And over the years, the system tracks all of the questions that people ask. And so they have a list of the top 100 be asked. So we make sure that we always ask those ones. Mm-hmm. It was a very interesting experience as well because people tend to treat this technology a little bit different than speaking to an interview. They seem to be more at liberty to ask difficult questions that you maybe would not ask ask someone to their face, Mm -hmm. perhaps, you know, about their nightmares or something that would upset them that you don't really want to be in a position to ask, you know, a real human being. So we actually had to go through and ask a lot of these questions that we would never have asked before. And it got some really interesting, yeah, sometimes very confronting. What sounds super challenging for the the survivors and and for, were you doing the interviewing as well? Was there a team doing it? There was a team of researchers and helping, you know, come up with the questions. There was the interviewer, but then there was about five staff who were backing up the interviewer, checking the responses, noting if we should ask a follow-up question. The care also that was required, because this is really um, Mm. for the survivors, like to be interviewed for five hours is really physically just challenging as well as emotionally dredging up all of these memories and day after day. Mm -hmm. So we made sure that we had always on site one of their family members for support. As well, we had a psychologist who would speak to them before and after, and that was always on hand. And we had a paramedic as well mm. that would you know, check their vitals in between breaks and keep an eye on to make sure that their breathing was okay. Because it is very hard when you interview someone for 20 hours. Usually our survivors would speak for about 45 minutes or an interview mm-hmm. would be about two or three hours. But this, it's stuff that they never talk about or they never have time because they're always condensing it. But we had all the time in the world to get into these memories that they don't bring up or stories that kind of often fall on the cutting room floor. So it, it was incredible. So how did the team navigate? Because there must be so much trauma and, and pain loss in the memories that are being discussed. How does the team navigate those difficult topics? It was hard. It, it it was very, I think, hard for everyone because our museum is like a family. Like I've been mm. there for 16 years. Like we know these survivors quite well and we feel very protective about them. And there are times in which they cry in the interview and it was hard for us not to just jump in or like protect them. It was a hard line, I think, for us to walk and to balance. Mm-hmm. But I think that was also the very important part of having the family in there and taking lots of breaks and taking our time. Mm. And we would have at the very end of this very emotional and difficult process, 
like in the evening, we would always call, someone would call them in the evening. And at the end, we would have a celebration. So we'd have a party and the whole family would be invited and all the staff would come down. And it was, I, I think that many of them felt very fulfilled despite the difficulty of it all. And I should say, they did not have to answer the questions. <laughs> we, we made it very clear that like, I don't want to talk about that is a perfectly okay response. And would you include that response then in, in the, the final exhibition? Yeah, absolutely. So if someone asked that question and that was the response they gave, that's the response that the system would give. I think that's a nice way to, obviously you're showing respect to the, the survivor in the moment of interview, but also during the exhibition as well for people to, to recognize that it is a real person's story and they can't just Im impose their will on this person. Yeah, well, I think that's the important thing is to keep the human element. Absolutely. There must be a, a lot of lessons learned that, for example, our listeners who are working in aged care and perhaps working with survivors of the Holocaust or genocide or just other violence in general, or maybe just very traumatic periods, working out how to, to be supportive and engaging them in conversation, but being sensitive at the same time. Yeah, I think, well, one, just as a staff, it's really important to talk to your co-workers, talk to your family, like not to keep it in. Like, mm. I think that's why we're one of the few places that we really like people to work on site because you just don't want to be alone. And I think COVID, especially last year with people doing a lot of this work, you know, it is very isolating to sit at home and to listen to such troubling stories. And so we mm. were trying to set up, you know, just weekly Zoom check-ins where everybody can just talk about some stuff or make sure you go out to your cafe. Mm. We also, um, we have a psychologist on kind of staff or accessible to staff who need to talk about things because it was really, it, it's emotionally draining mm. to listen to it all the time. A lot of times I think it wasn't even often the violence, but it was when they were speaking about their families. Mm. That was the hardest and letting them do that. Because I know you often want to make them laugh or change the subject, but you got to, you know, let let the survivor speak about it and express what it is and not make them feel awkward if they cry or like try not to show if you feel awkward with, with your, their emotion because then they feel self-conscious and it just is not, I think, a very good place for either person to be. It sounds like what would make the project successful, what you really need is, is to have a really strong relationship and a really strong community around the people you're interviewing so that they feel comfortable to be so vulnerable and express what they went through. Yeah, and it's a hard thing to do because I think when someone does start to cry, it's natural to try and stop them <laughs> mm -hmm. by any means necessary. So changing the subject or telling a joke or, you know, saying saying something like hearted or changing the situation. But I think sometimes it's okay to stay in the grief for a little bit and get it out and acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. And that was the hardest thing for us. It's my natural inclination to be like, oh, let me get you a cup of tea and let's... <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's no, okay. Why don't we talk about something? Yeah. Yeah, change the subject. But then I, I guess maybe that process, as you said, that the survivors themselves got a lot out of it, maybe letting them sit and giving them the space to assess what it felt like and what it meant, that could have been helpful. Yeah, I think it was. 
It was definitely hard on all of them, but I think by the end, there was a few definitely where there was a sense of relief that Mm. like they have got out everything that they could possibly ever want to share and like it is done. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And there, there was a little bit of a like final chapter to the process of I've recorded my history and it was beautiful, I think, at the end. That's great. I'm really excited to get up to Sydney and, and check it out. Such a, a fascinating idea and a great way to preserve human stories. Thank you so much for sharing today. Thank you for having me. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Age Care Enrichment Podcast. We'll be back next Tuesday and every Tuesday this year to bring you more in-depth and interesting interviews about the aged care industry. If you want to make sure you don't miss out on an episode, you can always subscribe to us in your podcast app of choice. But either way, we'll see you next Tuesday for another episode.